0: Alright, so welcome to the class. We don't always do this, but I should always do this. Let's open in prayer. (laughs) Lord, I just bring this material to you, and I just bring our time to you, and our minds to you, and we want to worship you, Lord, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And uh, today we have tons of material to cover, and I just pray that you would, um, your word would be a lamp unto my feet, and that you would guide me through it, um, through your spirit and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, um, as I alluded to in the prayer, we got tons of information. Um, This is kind of a grab bag lecture in between. Uh, We talked about the Big Bang and the argument from contingency very briefly and then from just the beginning. uh, uh, Yeah, the Kalam cosmological argument. So the beginning... Which is a super important argument and it was worth spending a whole lecture on and I didn't want to get other things in there because I want you guys to know the long cosmological argument. And next week we're going to talk about the Bible and um, what it says about evolution, what it says about creation, old earth, young earth, all that sort of stuff. Um, So if you want to, if you think of it you can pray for me because I'm not sleeping very well as I'm preparing this stuff. (laughs) Um, I mean it's kind of stressful because I come from a very conservative background and you know it's six day creation or basically you know you're a heretic. Um, and, uh, and, and so I want to take a good look at that, and I want to, um, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag before it's time for the class, but I just, uh, we, we want to have a good discussion on what the Bible actually says. So your homework this week, you can see, um, we'll just talk briefly about that, is, uh, you're going to read Genesis 1 to 3, and you're going to just do some reflection on it. I think what I have noted here is a minimum, like, if you want to take... Days and just really do an in depth study of these passages that would be very beneficial to you. But at least notice the differences, at least circle all the occurrences of the word day in those passages because that, that's very important. Um, and notice the differences between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So, Genesis 1 is kind of a one, it tells the story, and then in Genesis 2 it starts over. So, you need to notice that, compare the two. Uh, and then go to Romans 5 and Romans 8 talks about the theological significance of creation. So those are, Romans 5 and Romans 8 is is huge uh, for theology. And so you can answer those few basic questions there. Um, Somebody may ask, and there's maybe somebody out there in Facebook land wondering, why in the world uh, are we even talking about Big Bang? Why are we talking about, why aren't we just focusing on debunking evolution? And um, for people that weren't here last week, I think everybody was here last week though, um i shared a, a little joke that gets passed around sometimes about scientists that said we don't need god anymore we can create life from non-life and so they all get uh, a pile of sand and they're like god we don't need you we're gonna have a task and we're going to create a, a living being and god says go ahead create life and as they're gathered around their dirt ready to create life god yells from heaven hey get your own dirt yes. <laughs> And so we talked about how, before evolution can take place, we need to explain how the universe came into being from out of uncreated, out of nothing, the Big Bang. And then we're going to look at all these other things. There's at least seven major hurdles. Um, depending who's doing the counting, there can be literally hundreds of huge hurdles that we need to get across before evolution can even take place. So we're going to be looking at the Big Bang, the initial conditions uh, of the Big Bang, Uh, which was in your chapter, and so you spent a lot of time on that already. Goldilocks conditions for habitable planet. Mm -hmm. The origins of life, so life from non-life. Irreducible complexity, Michael Behe uh, coined that term and and talks about that. Biodiversity, and uh, DNA from random mutation. All this needs to happen before evolution can even happen. So, wherever you land on the spectrum between old earth, young earth, six day, you know, theistic evolution, whatever, um, the material we're going to cover is going to be helpful because it's basically saying, look, if you believe in evolution, if you believe in naturalism, uh, on naturalism, you still need to explain where these things came from. You still need an explanation for design I- in the universe. So when we're talking about the or- argument from design, this is called the teleological argument. Telos is a Greek word um, that speaks about the co- the reason for something. Everything seems to be built for a reason, and there's design Uh, very deeply ingrained. Wherever you look around us, we see design. We see superficial design. Um, You know, you can look at the trees, the grass. Everything has superficial design. But the deeper you go, the more design you see. And and everything around us just seems to be designed. Um, And so this was uh, formulated into uh, what might be known as the watchmaker argument by, um, I think it was Michael Pelley around uh, the 1800s. Uh, How many of you have heard the watchmaker argument? So he said, you have? No. No. Okay, Um, so this sort of thing gets kicked around in atheist Christian debates. But um, So Michael Pelley said, if you're walking along the field and you you stumble on a rock, you might safely assume that that rock has always been there and there's no particular cause for it. But if you stumble upon, for for example, a watch, and he's thinking of uh, a watch that was, you know, precision made with springs and and all that, you know, amazing sophistication that they had in a watch back then, nowadays it's also sophisticated in a different way. Um, You wouldn't think that random processes created a watch because it's incredibly complex. Uh, And so this was the kind of foundation, he wrote a whole book and there's a whole argument on it, but kind of the basis of it is, look, if you look at something that's made, it's got complexity. So in nature around us, biological life and, and other things like that, do we see order, or do we see non-order? We see order, and order is an indication of, of design. So this basic argument has been around for a long time. It's kind of fallen out of um, repute, I think, not so much because it's a bad argument, perhaps just because it, it wasn't presented sophisticatedly enough. And sometimes you hear people say something like, Who created creation? I mean, creation has to have a creator. How many of you have heard this? Uh, There's a famous video, um, "Expelled: No Intelligence Allowed by... Who made that movie again? Um, uh, Who's that, the the famously boring professor? Um, I should have written this down here. I should be following my notes instead of trying to go off memory because my memory always fails me in these teaching situations. Anyways, um, in this movie, that argument is made, who created the creator? And this is a fallacious argument because it begs the question, who created the creator? You're choosing the word creation, which necessitates a creator, why don't you just say, who created the universe? Uh, So this is a question-begging argument, if it's stated in that way. And so, for various reasons, the the teleological argument has kind of fallen out of disrepute. Until recent times, when the fine-tuning of the universe in the initial conditions of the Big Bang has been re- has been discovered, and we're seeing there is so much order and so much sophistication in the initial conditions of the Big Bang, as well as other places, um, that it pushes us to say, why is it so precise? Why is, is the Big Bang such a precise thing, and why is the universe so precisely made um, for uh, human life? Um... I actually knew somebody in high school who became a Christian uh, based on physics. Oh. And it was interesting because you know I was there as a missionary, so to speak, and I, you know, I was hanging out. With, I knew most of the Christians in school, and somebody mentioned so-and-so was a Christian too. And I said, really? He said, yeah, he, he became a Christian. Really? He didn't have any contact with me or any, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the nerve of some people getting saved without <laughs> me. Um, but he didn't have contact with any of the Christians that I knew. He wasn't going to church. And so I was like, what happened? And I didn't talk to him personally, but he's, the story I heard was he's an expert in physics. He's studying physics and very smart in that field, even in high school. And the evidence he's finding is, shows that there must be a creator God. And that is literally that's... Due to poor wireless connection. Are you still alive? Did you hear all that? Yes. Okay. Um, due to the fine-tuning of the universe... Um, there are people becoming Christians or becoming at least very sympathetic to the theistic argument because of the incredible fine-tuning. Um, something I meant to say earlier when I talked about why are we not just debunking evolution. Um, that, the evolution debate, has just become similar to World War I, where the sides are entrenched and no progress is made and we're just shooting at each other. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on. That's the evolution thing. But some of these other I was supposed to have a slide but have PowerPoint today. Some of these other things, such as the initial conditions of the Big Bang, such as the Goldilocks conditions, mm-hmm. these are far more neutral. They're not emotionally charged. Mm-hmm. And they're far more winnable, so to speak. Evolution is just such a big concept. It's hard to actually make process and make progress. And you need to be a specialist in, in a lot of cases to really make progress on these issues. Um, w- which is why let's talk about some of the other issues. Um, so the first one, obviously, the Big Bang, everything created out of nothing. The second one, the initial conditions. So there are two. Uh, I'm skipping over some some stuff here. You starting at section two, various other, other one, one. Hundred page one thirty one, opening remarks. Today there's a rebranding discussion. So there's the fine-tuning. We need to be clear that the fine-tuning, we're not um, making an argument from, um, from a definition. We're not talking about fine-tuning. We're not using the word created. Okay, and that's, that's what I was trying to bring out with the Watchmaker illustration, which is still a good ar- argument, but if we're saying who created the creation, we're, we're prejudicing the question beforehand. But fine-tuning is a religiously neutral term. It just means it's incredibly precise, and it could have been otherwise. It's like a watch where all the things are intricately put in place, and you say, well, what happened? It's fine-tuned. And it's fine-tuned for life. If things were not as they they are, life would not be possible. So there's two uh, different kinds of fine-tuning that we see in the universe and in the initial conditions of the Big Bang. Uh, First of all, there's constants. So, when you get into talking about, um, you know, the math of of the universe, the really famous equation that everybody knows is E equals mc squared, right? So I believe this is energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. And these are are constants, constants. the speed of light is a constant, and there's also a formula for gravity, there's a formula for... Um, all the the processes that that make up our universe. And in all these processes, there are constants, such as the speed of light, that don't change but make the math work. Mm -hmm. And because they're making, it's not as though we need math to work, it's that the the processes need to work and they need to be consistent and they need these these constants, such as the speed of light, to be as they are, or else life as we know it couldn't function, it couldn't exist. Um, atoms and molecules couldn't even exist if certain constants weren't in place, such as gravity, a very fundamental thing, uh, we need to have gravity things pulling together. The subatomic weak force and the subatomic strong force, no idea what they are, but apparently they're very important. Um, and the electromagnetic force uh, also is a constant that, that is necessary. I, I'm, Free and, uh, and able to admit my inadequacies in a lot of these fields, um, but uh, this isn't just Christians saying this. This is Christians and non-Christians. This is well established that these things need to be as they are, and they could have been different. Is the is the big deal? Um, we could easily imagine a universe where these things were different. As well, there's arbitrary quantities of things that are just put in at the at the Big Bang. How much energy? How much stuff? Uh, is put in to the initial conditions, how much stuff there was at the Big Bang at the beginning. Um, Specifically, how much entropy, how much usable energy there was at the Big Bang. So if there's too much stuff, if there's too much energy at the Big Bang, it'll just go boom, and it'll fly apart so fast that there'll be no time for planets, and for stars and planets and and galaxies to form. If If there's not enough, it goes pop, and then squishes back together, creates a black hole, and everything just is destroyed. That that precision of just even how much energy is in there is incredibly precisely fine-tuned. Um and before oh shoot, did, did anybody bring their textbook? Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Remembered everything else except that. So uh, I hope I remember everything else except that. Um, <laughs> Rather than hearing me talk more about this, I'll just read from an expert here. Fine-tuning in this neutral sense is uncontroversial and well-established. I'm reading from William Lane Craig, On Guard, page 109. Physics abounds with examples of fine-tuning. Before I share a few, let me give you some numbers to give you a feel for the delicacy of fine-tuning. The number of seconds in the entire history of the universe is around 10 to the 17th. That's one followed by 17 zeros. The number of subatomic particles in the entire known universe is said to be around 10 to the 80th, 1 followed by 80 zeros. That's a lot of little bits of stuff. Uh, Such numbers are so huge that they're simply incomprehensible. Now, with those numbers in mind, consider the following examples of fine-tuning. The so-called weak force, one of the four fundamental forces of nature, which operates, operates inside the nucleus of an atom, is so finely tuned that an alteration in its value by even one part out of 10 to the 100th power would have prevented a life-permitting universe. Similarly, a change in the value of the so-called cosmological constant, which drives the acceleration of the universe's expansion, by as little as one part in 10 to the 120th power would have rendered the universe life-prohibiting. Remember the low entropy state in which the universe began? We talked about it in chapter 4. Roger Penrose of Oxford University has calculated that the odds of that low entropy state existing by chance alone is on the order of 1 chance out of 10 to the 10 to the 123. A number that is so inconceivable that to call it astronomical would be a wild understatement. The fine tuning here is beyond comprehension. Having an accuracy even of one part to the 10th to the 60th is like firing a bullet toward the other side of the observable universe 20 billion light-years away and Mm. nailing a one-inch target. Mm. The examples of fine-tuning are so many and so various that they aren't likely to disappear with the advance of science. Like it or not, fine-tuning is just a fact of life that is scientifically well-established. So, now that we understand more or less what fine-tuning is, we're not going to argue that fine-tuning exists because it exists. Everybody recognizes that it exists. And as we're going to see, that's why they're talking about a multiverse. And and that's why, you know, people are flocking to a theory which is extravagant, which has no proof, which is, you know, far... Um, yeah, it's just extravagant with no proof. And normally science wouldn't lend credence to a theory that is extravagant with no proof. And why is it so fine-tuned? Um, So there's a bunch of objections we can talk about here. First of all, somebody might say, well, what if if gravity just works completely differently in another universe? What what if that's an option? And the objection to that, so that this particular objection is to say maybe the constants are the same, but in another universe, um, it's like E squared equals M M c squared. Or what if the, the the equations are completely different? And the answer to that, William, Craig's answer is: Look, we have no idea what a universe like that could be. There's no observation. We've never observed it. We can't even conceive of it. Uh, what we're talking about is if the constants are the same, or if the equations are the same, if the laws are the same, but the constants are changed. We know exactly what would happen. The atoms would blow up. They wouldn't coalesce. The the Big Bang would, you know, would not create. Would not be life permitting. So he says it's like this, say you shot a gun at a wall and you you hit a fly. Who? Well obviously you were aiming at it. And you can say well maybe outside of this box there's a whole bunch of flies, so many flies that you couldn't possibly miss. But you didn't hit one of these flies, these are are universes that have completely different laws of, of physics. You hit this fly, which is within the universes we can conceive of that have these laws. Uh, and so, it's still incredibly unlikely that you would hit that. Um, there's a lot of arguments in this that. Um, I'm not sure whether I can skip over them quickly. It's they're they're hard to to wrap our minds around because we're trying to wrap our mind around improbability, and he's trying to illustrate improbability in, in a variety of different ways. Um, secondly, they could argue, well, what if? maybe maybe it's possible that there's some other kind of life in these different sorts of universes. If you watch Star Trek, then you know that life can happen. You know, stars can be alive. There can be life on asteroids. And there can be life on, you know, planets with, with, uh, you know, incredible gravity and things like this. I mean, anything's possible, theoretically. Like, we we can't necessarily say that it isn't. But when scientists are talking about life, they're talking about the ability to take in food, the ability to extract energy from... (coughs) If you don't have stars and planets coalescing, it's pretty hard to see how any sort of life could happen. So, we're talking about option A, where we have the universe that we observe, or option B, where we just have you know hydrogen gas everywhere, or a, a ginormous fireball, or a black hole. So, yeah, I mean, you could say, well, maybe there's life in a ginormous fireball, or that maybe there's life in a black hole. I don't know. I can't really say there can't be. But the sort of life that we have observed, that we have found, needs these things to be in place.
1: very complex mathematical arguments there. He was saying, everybody says, you know, one of the arguments is, well, in an infinite universe, you know, anything is possible. You know, we don't know, just like you were saying. And he was making this argument that, number one, we don't live in an infinite universe. <laughs> we, we live in an observable, finite one. But the other thing is, he said that we live in a probable universe. So that, on the improbable, but in fact, our universe does have laws, and the laws do have um, definable results, end results, you know, things that happen, and therefore you could, you can't say, oh, maybe there could be an iceberg in the middle of the sun, because that's utterly improbable. And, and so, you you know, in other words, that we are allowed to take science, observe it, look at the way the universe works, and then figure out what could or could not exist or what can or cannot be. It has to do with probability, which I guess is what we're yeah. doing. So, just, we don't live in an infinite universe, so we live in a probable one. I really liked that as a, as a concept. It was easier for me to um, wrap my mind around. Although I guess God is kind of improbable
0: by some people's standards, so, oh well. <laughs> anyway, I'll talk Yeah. Um, so, fine-tuning exists. So, the argument is, the fine-tuning of the universe is either due to physical necessity, chance, or design. It's not due to physical necessity or chance. This is page 132. Therefore, it's due to design. So, we can take this step by step. It's great that William Lane Craig formats his arguments in these arguments like this, because you can you know what you're talking about. when you're. You know. So, premise one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. And he's got a very simple argument for that got another option, add it to the table. <laughs> but these are the only options that I can think of. Either it had to be that way, there was no other option for it, but for it to create life, or just blind chance, lucky us, yes, or there's some sort of design. And, it, and so then he's going to prove it could. it's not physically necessary, it could have been otherwise. Uh, and chance is an invalid uh, assumption, and so it must be designed. So... Well, in
1: this case, you're not talking about God. We're just talking
0: about the universe and the fine-tuning of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. So it's,
1: if that's why you say it's a neutral, religiously neutral term? It's a
0: religiously neutral term because um, there could be other reasons for the fine-tuning. And so there, there was, the, the big reason is the multiverse. There, there's so many universes out there, it had to work one time. And so that's at least an explanation for fine-tuning. And so people that believe in the multiverse will say, The universe is fine-tuned by accident, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and and that's logically consistent. There's a reason, there's a logical reason why it's fine-tuned. So we wouldn't agree with that. We would say God is a better explanation than the multiverse, Mm -hmm. you know, for for various reasons that we'll get to. But that illustrates how the term fine-tuning is religiously neutral. We're not saying that the universe was created, so it's very important to to grasp that difference. so, physical necessity, was the universe fine tuned due to physical necessity? Um, this is again a little bit out of my pay grade, but it seems as though um, the scientists are saying it could have been different. That's the whole point of the multiverse, that's the whole point of saying there's other potential universes out there. That's the whole thing that creates the problem of fine tuning, is that there could have been a different amount of entropy, there could have been different strong and weak forces, there could have been all these things could have been different and it it would not have been life-permitting. To say that the universe had to be life-permitting is an incredibly audacious statement. It's it's an incredible burden of proof to say there's no other way that this could be other than that it was life-permitting. There's uh, there's hope towards theories such as um, M-theory or the theory of everything. Um, Oh, But his argument is even if they come to a theory of everything or an M-theory, that still doesn't explain why it's fine-tuned, because the M-theory itself would need to be fine-tuned for life. So, it doesn't seem as though the necessity argument is a very strong one, because there's so many ways that it could be different than it is. So, we have our old friend Chance, uh, and this is one where if you are into apologetics, you come back to it over and over and over well, and you can create these numbers, ten to the power of a billion or whatever, And people eventually will just come back and say, well, there was at least one chance in 10 to the billion. And so, you know, lucky yes, it happened. Wow. And so, um, there's, William L. Craig has a lot of great arguments in in the chapter. I do want to get on to the other other arguments here. And so I'm going to skim over them a little bit. Uh, You you have them in your book, and hopefully you've read them. Um, The... In talking about chance, I keep coming back to, and i I've kind of drawn a picture here on page 134, uh, in studying ancient Near Eastern cultures, which is kind of more my thing than science, um, a lot of the cultures around Jerusalem, or, or around the, the Jews, kind of thought there was just infinite chaos, and the chaos gave birth to order. And the Jews thought, no, there was an intelligent God, and the God, you know, created everything two different ways of looking at things. And it seems as though the naturalistic vision of things is this, this old idea that there's just chaos. There's an infinite sea of chaos. We have infinite time, infinite chance, and eventually somewhere in the universe there's going to be a little tiny bit of order, or somewhere in the multiverse, or somewhere there's going to be a little bit of order. Um, so what can I say about this is that the more that we study it, I have another diagram, I think it's all the way at the end here, to change their order every once in a while. I don't have it. Did I not put it in here? Oh, I put it on the slides and we don't have slides today. So the more that we, we study it, so the idea is that we have infinite chaos and just a little bit of order here, which is our universe, our our earth or our universe, what's that? Page 134. Page 134 is, is where the this picture is. Yeah. Um, but the more that we study it, the more that we see, no, actually there's there's more order, and then there's more order, and there's more order, and all the way back to the beginning of the universe, there is order. And as far as we know, we've only got one shot. I mean, if the initial conditions were different, there would be no life. There's There's only one chance, and there's a limited amount of time. And so this seems to be pushing the the possibility of chaos further and further back to the point where they need to push it all the way out of our universe to say perhaps in the multiverse there is a possibility for these infinite chances. Um, And I would just say, which theory has been more useful, has had more predictive power? Which theory has had more predictive power? The theory that there's intelligent design behind everything, or the theory that there is infinite chaos behind everything. It seems as, I mean, the scientific method was born from people looking for design behind the universe. That's what makes sense. Because that's what makes sense. And the theory, the idea that there is design, that there is order behind the universe has always yielded good fruit. And this pursuit for that there, the idea that there's chaos behind we just have to keep pushing it back and back, and maybe there's chaos behind this hill, maybe there's chaos behind that hill. Until we're all the way out in the multiverse, this you know hypothesized imaginary place that nobody can see, nobody can observe. It's out of the realm of science. And maybe there's chaos over there that creates all the order. Um, and so I would just say, it seems as though um, the hypothesis of God has more explanatory power than the hypothesis of chaos as a creative agent. Um, is it any, anyway like,
1: just a simple...
0: Is there an example? I don't think we
1: have observable chaos, do we? I mean, is there? There's, a, there's
0: yeah, there's very little chaos, chaos actually in the universe. Is yes. the thing? Yeah. So yeah.
1: it's like to no, we can't. It makes us like it's so clear for us, but it's like if yeah. somebody's wanting to say no, that the, the order came out of all of the chaos, but to flip the table and say where did? Because do yeah. always find an explanation. Yeah. There's always a mechanism that there's always something
0: explains yeah yeah chaos is almost becoming an antiquated term because mm-hmm. I mean if you think, except for chaos theory and i think chaos theory is saying that certain processes are just so complex you can't define them mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that an infinite being like god couldn't see the math for mm-hmm. example in the waves of the sea and predict you know which wave is going to do what mm-hmm. that's way beyond our math but it's still orderly in its yeah. own way. I mean, I mean there just... There isn't chaos uh, mm-hmm. to draw on. Um, I'm seeing our time going, and I really want to get on to these other arguments here. Um, so let's just talk about the multi-world hypothesis, 137. Um, the multiverse doesn't really ex- explain away the fine-tuning, because the multiverse likely would... Or, or it may have had to be explained or um, fine-tuned as well. So if there's fine-tuning in the multiverse, that doesn't really explain away the fine-tuning here. And William Lane Craig just says it's, nobody can prove that there isn't fine-tuning in the multiverse. So he's taking kind of that defensive stance. Um, I think, I mean, scientists are probably looking for an orderly multiverse that, that follows certain rules. Um, and so then you'd have to say, well, that's fine-tuned as well. Um, of course, the explanations of the multiverse are so vague at this point that we don't really know what we're talking about, so it's hard to have any sort of a discussion about it. Um, the multiverse itself likely needs to have a beginning unless it follows some sort of laws of physics that you know we haven't discovered yet or, or that we don't have access to, so we can see the previous class for that. Um, and the, his last argument is that we're far more likely to see a lot less order than we do see. We see a tremendous amount of right down to the molecules and the subatomic particles, going back you know 14, 15 billion years. This whole ginormous universe is all orderly, as far as we can see. Um, so we wouldn't need to have nearly so much order to be able to observe it. So this, actually I do need to back up to look, talk about one argument here is the anthropic principle. Um, so the anthropic principle is the idea that we shouldn't be surprised to see an orderly universe. After all, if there wasn't an orderly universe, we wouldn't be here to observe it. <laughs> so, the fact that we're here and observing an orderly universe, I mean, if we weren't here, then we wouldn't be here to observe it. So, therefore, the likelihood of us observing uh, a universe an orderly universe is probability of 1. Not probability of you know 10 to the 10 or whatever. Um, so, his first argument for this is to say, look, pretend that you're uh, before a firing squad, and there's a hundred trained marksmen, they all have their guns trained on you, and you hear the command, ready, aim, fire! And they all fire, and you observe that you're still alive. Very improbable, based on you know the, the skill of everybody and, and their proximity and stuff like this. But you wouldn't say, well, if I wasn't here to observe it, then it wouldn't have happened, therefore the probability of me being here to observe it is is one, therefore I don't need an explanation. We still need an explanation for why we're here. Uh, And so this kind of gets back to the argument from contingency, the the chapter that we skipped over, Anselm's argument, um, that whatever exists needs to have a reason for, or an explanation of its existence. And the fine tuning of the argument, it isn't avoided by the fact that we're here and observing it. But if it was, if, if the anthropic principle was true, and that somehow our observing of the universe somehow created the universe, or, or somehow you know, had had some role to play. We don't need as big and as old of a universe as we have for somebody to be there observing it. We could have something just as big as our solar system, which is huge of course, but compared to the to the, to the universe it's much smaller, and that's all that you would need to have somebody observing it. In fact, You could have something even smaller, you could have just a mind popping into existence who thinks he observes everything else, but isn't really observing it. And this is far more likely, if you're you're just doing the math and figuring out the probability of a mind popping into existence and imagining that it it would be a good movie. (laughs) Um, So William Lynn Craig comes back to this argument over and over, and I haven't really understood it until I tied it to the anthropic principle that somehow us observing the universe creates the universe or explains the universe. So, you, you don't need anything more than a single mind to observe the universe. Um, and this is called the Boltzmann brain problem, which, whatever. <laughs> Alright, um, if you have more questions about the multiverse and about uh, the initial conditions, please raise questions in the question and the answer time. We're going to move on now to the teleological, the other teleological arguments. Um, and here, we're going to zoom through a lot of material pretty quick. And um, I'm going to give you references for further study, because um, I was feeling very inadequate a couple days ago, and being like, I don't have time to master all this, and I thought, you know what, Um, I can give people tools, and if you want further study, go ahead and and study it, Um, but we're talking about a lot of different fields of study, and it's just, it's a lot to take in. But the Goldilocks factors that allow life on Earth to exist are, are fairly well established, uh, as they're looking out every every day, they're seeing further and, and they're exploring more galaxies. And of course, they're very curious, scientists and, and uh, astronomers are very curious to find other planets that might support human life, if someday we can invent, you know, warp drive travel and, and be like Star Trek. Um, or perhaps there's aliens out there uh, that might want to communicate with us and tell us what the point of life is. Um, and so uh, there's... Uh, there's at least 15, I've seen lists up to 60, uh, re, um, things that need to be in place for a planet to support life. And it seems as, as we study life more and more, we get more and more things that need to be in place. Um, originally they thought, well as long as there's water on the planet, and it's the right distance from its sun, so that the water is is uh, thawed out and, and liquid, um, that there's a possibility of life. And this was called the Drake Equation. And, According to that, there might be as many as a thousand to a hundred million planets in the Milky Way galaxy that have those, that, that meet that condition. But then, there's all sorts of other conditions that we need to start adding and adding and adding and adding to, to the point where we get to um, a very unlikely, again it's not impossible, it's just very unlikely that there be another planet and it's very unlikely that Earth itself could be um, light permitting. Um, before I ju- dive into these, there was one illustration I want to use just to, because this is kind of a cumulative argument for design, that the more design you see, the less probable it is um, that it was random and that it was chance. And uh, I can illustrate this maybe in, in a silly sort of a way to say, in my home, it's not really chaos, but we have kind of a chaotic environment sometimes. We have four <coughs> little kids running around. And um, when my first child was born, I was studying um, the Old Testament and ancient Near Eastern myths and uh, I used to call him little Tiamat because Tiamat was the chaos monster that (laughs) created disorder. (laughs) And uh, anyway, so we have chaos in our home. And if something is placed in a certain place, we don't necessarily know why this toy was there. It could have been Abigail, it could have been Jedediah, it could have been me while I was thinking about this class and just picked something up and put it somewhere else. So we have chaos, right? But imagine, hypothetically, that my wife wakes up, the whole house is clean.
1: Angels are singing.
0: This doesn't happen often, okay? Um, And and she goes over to the coffee machine, and and the coffee's all set. (laughs) She has to press the button. And, and she she goes and she, she opens the fridge and she sees there's waffles already with you know, waffle sauce so,
1: and things like this
0: and, and her whole morning is 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 beautiful and wonderful. Would it be reasonable for her to say this just happened by random chance? It was the kids. <laughs> Anything's possible, right?
1: Possible for this.
0: Eventually, as you add uh, more and more complexity to the situation and more and more order, you say. I mean, if just a few toys are put away, it could have been the kids. It could have been chaos. It could have been just, they had a game where they put the toys away. It could happen. Um, but as you start adding more and more and more complexity to it, you say, there must have been some sort of a design yeah. in this. mother law Yeah, mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> um, the second thing I want to say before we dive into this is, um, how did you guys like your assignment on the God of the Gaps? Did you find that in the book? No.
1: Apparently,
0: that wasn't in the book, and I apologize for signing something that wasn't in the book. lots of material on
1: it. Yeah, it wasn't hard to look up.
0: Okay, so you looked it up online. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So, I mean, the idea of a God of the gaps is that our scientific knowledge is progressing. We get to a point where we don't know that there's a question we don't have an answer to. And so we postulate, God. God did it. And then we can continue. Well, as scientific, as real investigation continues then we don't need God anymore, and God is ejected from this place. Mm-hmm. And this can this can seem to be, A, this is a reason not to postulate God, not to bring God into science because it's a science stopper, and B, not to bring God into science because eventually it'll make God look bad when we find out why lightning strikes, Then we don't need God anymore. And so um, this is often used as an argument not to invoke God in the scientific discussions. Yeah? But having read that, I've also read several other... Uh
1: Articles on God of the Gap saying that recently technology is realizing, scientific technology is saying, well, we thought we understood this, but it's more complex than we thought, and we really can't. So that uh, that gap is actually mm-hmm. um, getting bigger. Yeah. So because there's more technology that is showing us that what we thought was right or understood, that gap is not getting. So
0: There's at least two, well, there's at least three things that are wrong with this. First of all, this has not been the case that invoking God has stopped science. Invoking God has started science and, and continued science. And secondly, um, when we invoke God, I mean, you, can, you can't claim everybody does this, but usually when, when rational scientific Christians invoke God, they're not stopping science, they're not saying, God is up there and he caused the lightning bolt. They're saying, you know, God created the atmosphere, God created the clouds, and the clouds created lightning, and maybe God is directing it in some invisible way. But we're still going to look for the means by which God is doing this. Um, but the bigger thing here is that we're discussing the question of, is at, at the bottom, the first cause, if we go back to last week, is the first cause mind or matter? Essentially, is the world... Designed. So we're all the way back on the first page here, 128. 128. Um this is what happens when I get a little bit close to the wire, my order of things is <laughs> a little bit screwy. Um, so 128 has my wonderful picture, and then on the page of one bottom of page 129, the stories you no know, the top of 130. Most importantly, the God of the Gap story obscures the fact that one of the most important and controversial questions of human history is, is the cause of all things mind or matter? Does God exist or does only matter exist? And as science progresses and we see more and more and more and more order, it's like my wife waking up and the whole house is clean and and the coffee is made and all this sort of stuff, there's order, and it's finely tuned for her enjoyment. Mm -hmm. She is, I mean, there's... She could say this just happened by chance, or she could say there was intelligent design behind it. <laughs> <loves me. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and I intended to do something like this so I could say, and I actually did that this week, but uh, I'm not that good of a husband, at least not this week. You can do <laughs> <laughs> um, So that's the argument is that as we continue to see more and more fine tuning, so to speak, the best explanation for fine tuning is a mind. Not random chance. Mm-hmm. So this isn't a, a God of the gaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is saying, what's the best inference from the information we have? From the information we have, is it more likely, more probable, that all this fine-tuning just happened by chance, or is it more likely that it happened um, because of uh, an intelligent designer? So are you guys clear on the, fine- on the uh, God of the gaps thing? Mm-hmm. I assign it because it's a pretty important thing that comes up, up pretty often. Okay, so now let's dive into a rapid-fire discussion of some of the things that had to come into place before evolution could even happen. Um, I have a list here. I think you have it in your notes. Uh, just the basic outline. You can find this sort of thing online. It's very well-known. There's nothing controversial in it. 139. Um, proximity to the sun, the ideal temperature... Uh, presence and amount of water, science and composition of Earth as a rocky planet. The Earth has the a planet needs to be have rock in the middle, not not be a gas giant like mm-hmm. Jupiter and uh, Saturn. It needs to have actual rocks, yeah. and um, it needs to have water, the right amount of all these things. It needs to be the right distance from the sun. Uh, it needs to have an iron core, causing a magnetosphere. This is recently discovered because Mars has basically no atmosphere because there's so much. I mean. The sun is burning up, and it's shooting off um, uh, a solar wind. Whatever that's made out of, uh, it's shooting off stuff all the time. And and that we are protected by that. From, we're protected from that by our magnetic core that causes the north and south pole. That causes the magnetic field around the Earth. That the solar wind bounces off of, and we only get the good stuff and not the bad stuff. Um, as well, we have um, an ozone layer. Point nine. We have the right sort of gases in our air so again we're protected from the harmful radiation of the sun we only get the right amount to create photosynthesis and to give us vitamin E make us, you know, give us a nice suntan but it doesn't incinerate us which is very helpful for allowing life to continue um, there's a consistency of temperature on earth uh, if you look back over the last 100 million years if we're talking about evolution again we're, we're saying if evolution is true, if naturalism is true, if all these things are true then is it probable that all this would happen just by chance? So, the, the temperature on Earth has been constant for a very, very, very long period of time. And this is, this is surprising, because it didn't have to be this way. Uh, certain things need to be in place. Uh, diversity of life. There need to be a certain diversity of life on Earth. Just one type of animal, which would have been more likely if evolution happened, just one type of animal that branched off into a very similar, but you know, just a little bit different type of animal. Um, that's more likely, but it wouldn't have been able to survive the many the catastrophes of Earth's history. So apparently, there was an asteroid that crashed down and killed most of the dinosaurs. Before that, um, there was a big volcanic event up in Siberia that caused a bunch of pollution, so to speak, and killed off about 95 percent of Earth's uh, life, according to uh, to evolution and naturalistic explanation. So the way that life survived that is by having so much diversity. Well, where did the diversity come from? Um, It it seems unlikely if there was no tampering, so to speak, from the outside. Um, Some things that I find really exciting and I feel kind of click with people are Jupiter as a huge uh, vacuum cleaner in our solar system. How many of you guys have heard about this? So Jupiter is ginormous. It is a very, very large planet, and it is an un- improbably large planet. And this is something where, okay, I, li- I was listening to the radio and I heard some scientists talk, and I haven't been able to verify it since. But from what I under, from what they said, normally planets, because you know a, a solar system develops with you know there's a big cloud of gases and, and dirt and stuff and eventually gravity kind of sucks the sun together and as things are orbiting around that, planets get sucked together and stuff like that. It's gonna be somewhat organized how planets develop. And of course you have asteroids crashing in here and there, but it's gonna be somewhat organized how it develops. But what we have is a very improbable organization. We have tiny little Mars, tiny little Venus, great big Earth with a great big moon, and then a few other planets, and then a ginormous, this is totally not to scale, but we have ginormous Jupiter, yeah. which is way too big. And then Saturn also is too large, but Earth specifically is too large. And so, um, what was mentioned in this radio show, um, which I would love to, I'll just put a parenthesis around this, this mm-hmm. m- is a little bit hearsay, is that one theory is that there was a cosmic avalanche, so to speak, as this dust cloud was around the sun, something hit something, and caused everything to start falling in towards the sun so that Jupiter got bigger than it was supposed to be, so that Earth got bigger than it was supposed to be, so that it ends up in this life-permitting zone where it's close enough to the sun, it's the right size, it's got enough iron in it to permit life. It's it's unlikely because it should be further out. If it's that size, it would be too cold. Or um, if it's further in, it should be smaller. And Jupiter, specifically, is very, very important because it protects us from asteroids. So as, you know, the the Sun is here and everything is whipping around it, and these asteroids are being pulled in from deep space, and they they go around the Sun, and they get sucked into into patterns of orbit. Um, Jupiter is also whipping around, and as Jupiter comes close to these asteroids, because it's so large, and it's a bigger target, but also it has so much mass, and it has such a gravitational pull, it had a tendency to, to suck these things in, and so this is pretty important, right? Yeah. Um, if you look at the at the moon, you see all these clock marks on it of, of what would of yeah. asteroids hitting and it yeah. meteors. Uh, There's difference between asteroids and meteors. Meteors are when they come into our atmosphere. I think and asteroids are when they don't. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong on that. Um, scientists will say that around 50 million years ago. Most, 65% of Earth's uh, life ended when an asteroid hit the Earth. And there, there's large craters in the Earth, and, and this is why they say that's a extinct. extent. We recently observed a huge meteor hitting uh, Jupiter. This was in 92, I believe. I forget the name of it, but if you Google it, you'll find it. Um, and the impacts left a dust cloud on Jupiter the size of Earth.
1: Ooh. Which
0: indicates that if that meteor <laughs> had hit us, Okay, actually it broke up into about seven pieces, and just one of the pieces caused a dust cloud the size of Earth. So if that meteor had have hit us, it would have blocked, it would have created a dust cloud that would have enveloped the Earth, okay. and it would have dramatically changed life on our planet. Jupiter gets hit by, by meteors 5,000 times more often than Earth does, according to recent calculations. Because it's so large, and it sucks up all these asteroids, and it protects us. Wow. That's so that's rather convenient, yeah. isn't it? Um, So, all these people that are looking for life on other planets, it's all fine and well to say the the planet is the right distance, it's got enough water, it's blah 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 blah. but if asteroids are coming in because all suns are going to be attracting asteroids, all planets are going to have mass, they're going to attract random bits of of junk from space, Um, if every couple, even a couple hundred thousand years, this earth gets smacked by an asteroid and it it upsets everything, uh, that's going to put an end to uh, the life permitting situation on that planet. Or at least dramatically alter it. Um, the stability of our solar system. Our solar system is very stable. As we look out in the galaxy, they're not all stable. Our location in the Milky Way is very convenient. Um, we're not. It's convenient for observing the the Big Bang and the history of the universe, as we mentioned. It's observe, It's convenient for science. It's also convenient for life. Uh, the stability of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is is stable. It's not in the process of being sucked into a black hole, which is also you know. We like that. We like that we're not being sucked into a black hole. Uh, it's not in the process of colliding with another galaxy. We see this sort of thing happening all the time. Um, and the stability of our larger universe, our, or the, the quantum universe. The quantum universe, is that... What is quantum? Is that smaller? It's smaller. But, but th-
1: that is still very stable. Yeah. Of... Not exactly sure what that means. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but all these things need to be in place for life-permitting universes. So... I mean, is this proof? I mean, you can always say, well, maybe it just happened. Maybe it's just chance. Mm-hmm. But as we add chance to chance to chance to chance, and especially as we talk about Jupiter, and, oh, and the other thing was the, mo- the moon. I missed I miss the moon. So the Earth has a ginormous moon. I keep using the word ginormous, very scientific, technical term. Um, if you look at Jupiter, you barely see the moons because they're so small. And Saturn has moons, but... You never talk about them because they're so small, they're, they're just basically part of its rings. And Earth has a very large moon, comparatively speaking. And um, the moon slows down the Earth. If it wasn't for that, we would rotate our days, I think they said would be about four hours long.
1: Foo, 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 foo.
0: <laughs> Which I guess we would get used to, I don't know. Um, but because we got the moon, it slows down the Earth, and it also creates tides. And that's important because evolutionists say that life evolved in a tidal pool. And so without the moon, we wouldn't have a tidal pool. Without a tidal pool, we wouldn't have evolution. Um, Of course, if you believe in special creation, then that's not an issue. But there's a whole bunch of other things that the tides do for our oceans to mix them up and to create life. And to, you know, just that motion is necessary as well. Um, They say that the reason that we have the moon is that a long, long time ago, Wow, or <laughs> however that song goes, the earth was hit by a, a really large asteroid that literally broke it into pieces and then one of the pieces of earth started circling the other. I think they actually say that the meteor hit the earth and punched the center out. And the center of the earth became the moon. That, but there's different theories about it. Certainly the idea is that part of the earth became the moon. And again, you look at that and that's just, it's so improbable. Like, why do we have a moon that is this large, Mm -hmm. that it dramatically affects our gravity and our our water supply? Um, So there's just all these factors, these Goldilocks factors, that add one upon another upon another the improbability of our planet creating life, which is very depressing when you like Star Trek. I am watching Star Trek right now. (laughs) (laughs) Netflix comes out pretty often. Um, But, uh, you know, it's exciting to think about aliens on other planets and Mm -hmm. and things like Mm -hmm. that, but... When you look at the actual statistical numbers,
1: Men in Black shows
0: wonderful universes. Yeah. Um, when you look at the actual things that need to be in place for life to happen, uh, it becomes more and more improbable uh, that life could happen elsewhere. And also, it just shows how improbable it is that life would be here at all, and how much we need to thank God for for that. Or it's fine tuning. It's the fine tuning argument. Yeah. Um, We have biodiversity, we have, which I already mentioned a little bit. So the Cambrian Explosion, again I had a PowerPoint, this is unfortunate that uh, we don't have PowerPoint today. Um, The Cambrian Explosion, so when Darwin first came up with the, the whole thing of evolution he said that everything evolved from lesser life forms through slow and gradual and incremental changes and he said you know it's kind of like this you know you have a tree of life where you have all these things branching off and you know, as you look at the fossil record what you're going to find is a fish that's half amphibian and lizards that are half birds and, and you know all these intermediate forms what we're actually finding is what they now call punctuated equilibrium where you have you know one set of life forms and it does Uh, with some striking exceptions to that. But you don't really have things that are not viable, and you don't have things that are true intermediary forms. You have a sudden jump where all of a sudden you have frogs, and then you have another jump where all of a sudden you have birds. And, and there's, there's not really intermediary things. This isn't creationists saying this. This is evolutionists, secular people that are saying, now punctuated, equilibrium. this is not in your And now what they're talking about is um, the Cambrian Explosion. And what this is, is uh, a time in the past, I think it was 145 million years ago, more or less, something like that. And in a very short span of time, relatively speaking, because we're talking about millions and millions of years, all of the major types of animals, all the major filii of animals suddenly appeared on the scene. Just boom, they were there. So there's no gradual tree of life in the, in the fossil record, just all of a sudden the Cambrian explosion, everything appears, and then from there it diversifies. So of course, young earth creationists will say, well that's because of the flood, and you know, below the, the, a certain level there's nothing because that's as low as the flood, flood, flood where it's got. Certainly secular um, atheists wouldn't say that, but there's something very strange about all this life happening all of a sudden all of the different filii happening in a very short amount of time, and this is something that people are scratching their head over. Why did all this life happen so suddenly, so dramatically in the Cambrian expo- Explosion? As well as all throughout evolution history, this punctuated equilibrium, things just popping into existence more or less fully formed and fully viable rather than, um, you know, from gradual mutation. So then we have um, irreducible complexity. Uh, and here, maybe I will try and show you a video just on my computer. Um, Michael Behe is um, a biologist who is a Christian who um, has done a lot of work on irreducible, on something he calls irreducible complexity. Do I have internet here? I do. This will work. <laughs> um, you know what? I'm going to save that, actually. Maybe I'll save that for Q&A time. Um, what he's done is, as he's looking into the cells... Um, the further that we look, and now with electron microscopes, we can look r- really literally into the, f- the molecules of a cell. And he's got a book called Darwin's Black Box because um, the idea, the concept of a black box, is um, something that you don't really understand. Like a computer for most of us is a black box. <laughs> we know it works, <laughs> we know we push the buttons and, and things come up on when the screen. It If it doesn't work, we take it to somebody that knows how to fix it, right? We don't really know what's going on under the hood, so to speak. Um, And for Darwin, a cell was basically a black box because they could look through microscopes and just through the microscopes they had at the time, they could see little squiggly things. And they divided and and they collided and fought each other and did different things and created more complex organisms. So they just assumed that this is a simple process. And so it was easy at the time to say, well, this just happened out of, you know, non-life and this, this evolved naturally and uh, it's easy to think of, of one thing growing into a more complex thing but um, there's a lot of systems that we're now discovering that are irreducibly complex, the idea of irreducible complexity is that if you remove one part from it the whole thing doesn't work if you can think of a mouse trap. you have all these different parts. You have the base, you have the spring, you have the, ha- you have the, the whacking part, you have the hammer, you have the bait, you have the, um, the hammer that, that releases the, the, the whacking part. Um, and if one of these things isn't in place, one of these seven or so things, the whole thing doesn't work. So this is irreducible complexity. Yeah, you can, you can boil certain things down, but you get to a certain point, and you can't get it more simple than that without it stopping, without it losing basic functionality. Uh, and the one thing that he talks about a lot is um, bacteria have often a whip-like tail, which is how they drive, so to speak, how they swim through the water. And this tail has a little motor that runs on acid, that drive moves up to a drive shaft that ha- goes outside of the, the shell and then it has this whip-like tail. He's identified about 17 different parts of this whip-like tail that all need to be in place. And when you look at it, maybe we'll show the video during Q&A time, um, it looks like part of a car or something. Like, it's, it's incredibly complex and it's incredibly uh, sophisticated. And if one thing is, is taken out of this, it's not going to work. So how could that evolve? From how could that you know move on to the next stage? Um, increasingly, uh, as we look at cells more and more, we're realizing these are these are factories. There's so much going on. There there's little organisms. There there's there's life in there. Um, it, there's incredible complexity within even the most simple cells, and even more than that, it's like a city of factories going on where, where the uh, DNA is is being programmed to, to build certain things and then more DNA is being constructed and you have all these, these incredible tiny machines made of tiny little molecules doing their little jobs all within a cell. Which backs us up to... Um, oh, where do we have this? Oh, I just skipped it in your notes. Okay. Um, creation of life from non-life. So we need to ask, when we look at how complex even the most basic cell is, we need to ask the question, this is just not in your notes, just have to write it out, how could life evolve from non-life? How could we jump that gap from sand to bugs? How do you you get from here to there? And this is what I have used in sermons often, I I find it helpful because, um, no, no, it is page 140. Uh, the famed Miller-Urey experiment in the middle of the page. Um, if you look at dirt, and if you look at my hand that's holding the dirt, uh, on a molecular scale they're not very much different. They have and they have silica, they have various things in them. What's different is that my hand is alive, and all these molecules have been sucked into the dance of life, so to speak. And once that dance starts, it can perpetuate itself. But how do we start the dance? How do we get life from non-life? And scientists have been trying for hundreds of years, probably, but certainly for the last hundred years, to get life from non-life. And they thought they had a good answer with the Miller-Urey experiment in the 70s, I believe, where they created, uh, they they put a bunch of chemicals that they thought would have been there in the original, uh, in the first conditions in the tidal pool where life first began and they, they put it in a cycle and then they had electricity zapping it just like lightning would do and they had a little trap that if, if certain life was created it would go into the trap. Um, this experiment has, is still often used in textbooks to explain how life may have originated but the experiment itself has been debunked for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, he had the chemicals wrong and f- further study has seen that Um, The chemicals that actually would have been in place at that time in history would have been things like cyanide and other things that were completely detrimental to life. Um, These are so-called organic compounds, but don't be confused with organic and life-permitting. Sometimes organic compounds are very um, detrimental to life. Um, And secondly, the the lightning would have been far more destructive than life-giving, but more importantly, what they with DNA and an ability to self-replicate, to take in food, to reproduce, and all these things that living cells need to do in order for, you know, survival of the fittest to take place. Uh, this is all in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for a Creator. Uh, so you can get more information there. Uh, and I'm going off memory. I read it about five years ago. Um, but one of the scientists he interviews says, look, just imagine that we took a cell and I poked it. And so all the contents of the cell leaked out into the water. Now you have a whole lot more stuff in that water than they would have had through the, um, the miller urey survey or, or experiment. You have everything you need to create a cell. So would you believe that all these things just magically went together and created another cell? Even if you have all the building blocks there, which is extremely unlikely, you have to explain how these things came together and created these incredibly complex mm-hmm. things. Uh, and so it's, it's not necessarily insurmountable. And I'm, I need to be clear that I'm not making an argument, a God of the gaps argument here. What I'm not saying is science cannot create life from non-life. I actually don't know if that's true. I haven't checked the recent studies. I know they're trying actively to do this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not saying science ha- cannot create life from non-life. Therefore, God must have done it. That's not my argument. My argument is if science ever creates life from non-life, they've been trying for 100 years throwing their best minds and the best science at it and if they eventually manage to create one tiny little cell or something like that, likely they'll just copy another cell mm-hmm. and call that life. If they do, I think that would be pretty strong proof that this couldn't have happened by accident. Mm-hmm. If it was easy enough to happen by accident, wouldn't it have happened yeah. by now, okay. you know, with, with, with all their tests and with all their, their experiments. <laughs> um, so this is different, I don't want to make a go of the gaps argument here. Uh, and some will, and maybe it's valid to say, because so far, I don't think they've created life from non-life. Um, but especially when you when you see how complex these cells actually are, and I encourage you to, to do some YouTube videos, uh, because it's really cool to watch, too, of just how complex the cells are and the things that they're, they're discovering now. And how everything needs to work, or else the cell will die, or, or become cancerous. Um, okay, so that's irreducible complexity, that's the creation of life. Um, Did I have any other points I was going to talk about here? Hugh Ross, as well, the final point here is that Hugh Ross said, look, um, in order for evolution to take place, um, mutations are more more often disadvantageous than advantageous to a species, to a factor of 1 in 10,000. So if you have 10,000 mutations, you might have one positive mutation. Um, And so you're only going to have positive evolution if your species is very numerous to the point of a trillion or more, uh, no, he said a quadrillion or more species, and if the body size is less than a centimeter and their lifespan is less than three months. And so if all these things are in place, sure, you can have positive mutations and evolution, which is on a, as you look, as you study uh, viruses and bacteria, you do see evolution, you see mutation, you see things like that. But in order for something like a whale to mutate, and their numbers have never been large, you've never had more than a few thousand whales on the earth. For them to mutate and and evolve, according to his math, it just doesn't make sense. There's not enough species, and their body is too large and complex. Any mutation is just going to kill it. Um, And so, um, you can have a look at that. So, I want to conclude this. We'll go right to Q&A right now. Um, I want to give you a few books, okay? So, Michael Behe, Darwin's Black Box. Michael Behe... Michael Behe is associated with the uh, intelligent design movement, known as ID, and um, so there's lots of stuff being published about that, that, uh, that it's more likely that life was created by intelligence than that it came into being randomly. Hugh Ross is somebody that we're going to look at next week, and he's got a website and a ministry called, uh, called Ross called Reasons to Believe. And so he's got a lot of really great resources, and he's kind of on the cutting edge of science, um, looking at cosmology, looking at biology, looking at a whole bunch of other things. Just hold your question for a second. Um, And so he's got a lot of good resources that are going to talk about some of the resources I got for today were from Hugh Ross. Uh, Michael Vigia, I haven't looked into him recently, I read Darwin's Black Box, I read um, uh, the uh, Lee Strobel book, uh, Case for a Creator book six years ago but it's so cutting edge, there might be counter arguments that I don't, I'm not aware of um, what else did I want to mention for, for resources I think that's it for now you won't recommend anything from Creation Ministries? Um, sure Creation Ministries because that's where I So creation ministries as well is gonna have a lot of good resources. Um, I think those are all the folks that I've cited so far. All right, so what do you guys got for questions from all of this information? Mm. Let's let's actually no. Tell me if you have questions, and then we'll do videos if we have time. Mm.
1: Wouldn't think about it.
0: Anyhow, anyway. <laughs> that wasn't a question, which is not observation. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. it's best possible conditions. All the all the chemicals necessary, everything. And, and the main objection to um, the Pele watch thing is that the watch uh, is not alive, but cells are alive. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so you're comparing. So life, you know, can evolve. Was, was the argument. Well, how does something become alive? Mm-hmm. You know, and makes me think of Psalm 104 that God gives his spirit and and the the earth brings forth life, he takes away his spirit and things die. Mm-hmm. There's something again, I don't want to make an argument from a God of the gaps, but there's something so mysterious about what life is. We talk about it all the time. There's biological matter and there's inert matter. There's organic matter and non, you know, uh, we have compost and we have sand. And we know the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Um but what is it? And how do you get from one to the other? Mm-hmm. That's that's the big question. And I like what you said too, that it seems like we would have more questions if we didn't believe in God. And it does seem as though at times there is almost an atheism of the gaps. That we don't know what caused the fine-tuning, but as science progresses, we will find the answer and it will be naturalistic. Well, great, but that's just, you're just hoping that it will will solve Mm -hmm. the problem.
1: Here. When, we look, when you're looking at page 138 and you have the various hurdles that GAPs need to get over. Mm-hmm. Um, one is called Initial Conditions. That's, that's in the textbook. Right?
0: Yeah, that's what we talked about first today. That was the first thing we talked about. I should have said Initial qu- Conditions and Quantities? Oh, you mean
1: Yeah, constants and quantities. Sorry. Sorry, that's That's what I'm referring to. Initial conditions, constants and quantities. Constants and quantities. Yeah. Different constants and different quantities on different multiverses could create those weird, those weird aliens that we see
0: in (laughs) all the space movies. (laughs) If they still talk our language and breathe the same air. Isn't that annoying when they have science fiction movies? And everybody speaks English. Yeah. You know, with a with an American accent. It's like really like you can't go across the earth and find somebody who speaks your language, but you can go across the galaxy. The
1: Universal yeah, translator right <laughs> <Translators> just <laughs> makes uh, it sound like that. that also <laughs> happened by chance.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so, that's kind of Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It became more and more apparent as I learned another language. Like, yeah. sure, of course the Klingons speak English. <laughs> <Of
1: course. laughs>
0: Here's a.
2: Uh,
0: yeah, let's, let's watch some cells. Oh, Into an automobile factory factory
2: has a large number of machines. The parts have to fit together in very specific ways to do their jobs. And if things go wrong, the cell is in big trouble. And just one cell is enormously complex. But humans, you and I, are made from trillions of cells. And those trillions of cells have to fit together in the right way and do their own job. Darwinism was a lot more plausible when we were thinking about globs of protoplasm than it is when we're thinking about molecular machines.
3: Each of these biochemical machines is a masterpiece of engineering and nanotechnology. They are essential to functions as vital and diverse as vision, photosynthesis, and the production of energy in the cell. Michael Behe has studied several of these machines, including the flagellum, a remarkable rotary motor,
2: I remember the first time I, I looked in a biochemistry textbook and I saw a drawing of something called a bacterial flagellum with all of its parts and all its glory. It's had a propeller and the hook region, and the, the drive shaft and the motor. And I looked at that and I said, that's an outboard motor. That's designed. You know, that's no chance assemblage of, of parts. Beanie's reaction was not
3: surprising, especially when the bacterial flagellar motor is animated and magnified more than 50,000 times to display the details of its construction and operation. Howard Berg at Harvard has labeled it the most efficient machine in the universe. Mm-hmm. These machines, some of them are running at 100,000 RPMs and are
2: hardwired into a signal transduction or sensory mechanism so that it's getting feedback. It's got some tail proteins which act as the propeller. When the flagellum rotates, these push against the water and therefore push the bacterium forward. And the motor uses a flow of acid from outside of the cell to the inside of the cell to power the turning. The bacterial flagellum has two gears, forward and reverse, water cool,
3: proton motive force. It has a stator, it has a rotor, it has a U-joint, it has a drive shaft, it has a propeller. It's not convenient that we give them these names. Hey, one of those little things really yeah. <laughs> In all, about forty different protein parts are required to build a flagellar motor. Half of them are constructor proteins, specialized mechanisms that assemble the flagellum's individual components. Since its discovery, biologists have tried to understand how a machine of such superb design could have arisen gradually without foresight or plan, through the biological pathway
2: Darwin envisioned. I think what Darwin was trying to show was that things that look designed aren't really designed, but that we can find naturalistic processes to account for the complexity of life. Darwin theorized that every part of every living organism evolved through natural selection, a blind process that acts upon random changes in the cells.
3: Darwin believed that, given enough time, these random variations would transform the simplest cells into the great diversity of life that inhabits our planet. In his study of evolution and molecular machines, Michael Behe has raised a significant challenge to the creative power of Darwin's mechanism of natural selection. It is called Irreducible Complexity. Irreducible Complexity... Was coined by Mike Behe in describing these molecular machines. Basically, what it says is that you have multi-component parts to any given organelle or system in a cell, all of which are necessary for function. That is, if you remove one part, you lose function of that system. Irreducible complexity can be illustrated by a familiar non-biological machine: a mousetrap. The trap is composed of five basic pieces. A catch to hold the bait. A strong spring. A thin bent rod called the hammer. A holding bar to secure the hammer in place. And a platform upon which the entire system is mounted. If any one of these parts is missing or defective, the mechanism will not work. All components of this irreducibly complex system must be present simultaneously for the machine to perform its function. Catching mice. The concept of irreducible complexity also applies to biological machines, including the bacterial flagella.
2: All told, there are about 40 different protein parts which are necessary for this machine to work, If any of those parts are missing, uh, then either you get a flagellum that doesn't work because it's missing the hook or it's missing the drive shaft or whatever, or it doesn't even get built within the cell. You can't put something like that together gradually because they need a large number of parts interacting with each other at the same time before they work at all.
3: Without the tools to observe the machinery of the cell. And long before the idea of irreducible complexity, Charles Darwin offered a way to test his own theory. In Origin of Species, he wrote, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my
2: theory would absolutely break down. <laughs> All right. Darwin acknowledged that if someone identified a biological system that could not have been constructed in incremental steps over long periods of time, then his theory would be invalid. And what Michael Behe and others have discovered is the existence of biological machinery that cannot be explained away by Darwinian processes. Darwin's failed predictions have, in fact, falsified his own theory. What's the name
1: of no.
0: That's the that's the okay. next one. I want to
1: show my husband.
0: Sure, it's called Michael Behe. Yeah. Um, For the longest that time, It's um, called Michael Behe Lee Strobel. Molecular Machines Disprove Evolution. Okay. Machines... So this is really, um, again, I keep saying this, but this isn't just the Christians saying this. This is, this is where we're at. Last night I was trying to watch um, a YouTube video of uh, the bombardier beetle. You know what the bombardier beetle is? The little bug that can shoot uh, hot acid out of its uh, abdomen. And I, it's really, I don't know if you've heard of this, this beetle, but it's basically like a fire-breathing bug, which is cool. And I'm trying to find YouTube videos, and, and both of the ones I found showed the little beetle, showed how it worked, you know, and it puts these three chemicals together, and there's a chemical reaction. And then the second half of the video was, we don't know how this could have evolved, but we are studying it, and here's our current theory. And it was like, I don't care about that, just show me the bug. Uh, And this wasn't Christians arguing this. I know creation science will will have a lot of talk about the Bombardier beetle, but there's, not just in cells, but in certain bugs and certain different other processes, you get to a point you're like, and they said it on the film, too. It's like, if, how could this evolve? If the bug put the chemicals in the wrong spot, it would blow up. And so there, there's, you get to a lot of these different places in, as you're studying different processes, and you say, this couldn't have evolved pr- in processes uh, because it's irreducibly complex. And, and so it's, it's really causing a lot of evolutionists to scratch their heads to say, well, how did this actually come about if it couldn't have come about incre- incrementally? So let me just pray for us, and then we'll head off.
2: Thank you, Lord Jesus,
0: that um, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, and the works of Your hand uh, speak Your name. And thank you, Lord, that what uh, what we know about You can be clearly seen from creation—Your invisible qualities and Your great power and intelligence. And I just pray that You would, um, as we go from here, Lord, I pray that Your glory would be manifest in our lives, in our humility, in our caring for others, in our love. And I pray, Lord, that. Um, I pray that you would free people, Lord, from the blindness um, that uh, Satan has them under, and uh, I pray, Lord, that, um, that you would speak to people's hearts, which is where people are hurting and where they need you, and where the blindness often comes from. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you give people the freedom to, um, to reach out to you, and if that freedom needs to come by answering apologetic questions, then I pray, Lord, that you would give us the right answers to, to give them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank
1: you.
0: Yeah, do you have more homework for... Let me stop this so we don't...